Welcome, everyone. My name is Julene Jackson. I am the National Vice President for Moms for America here today with Vivian Brown. Uh, I'm in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Vivian is our Moms Link Manager and Cottage Meeting Manager coming from San Antonio, Texas. And you beautiful mamas are coming from coast to coast. Welcome to our cottage meeting this morning. We're studying the healing of America. 16-week seminar. We are on week number 11. We are chugging along. We're getting smart. We're getting wise. God is speaking to us as we're learning this great history and what our founders intended. So grateful to be with you uh, this morning. Okay, my beautiful mama, summer's flying. Oh my word. I think some of you maybe have school starting for your children or grandchildren here in a week or two. I'm just so glad. Welcome back, back to my home. For the last four weeks, I tried to think of all the places that we taught the last four weeks uh, was Ohio, one, one uh, a hotel in Ohio, in Utah, and Iowa, and then we were at the beach, remember, last week I had my conch shell on. <laughs> so it's so good to welcome you back into my home. I would just love Girls, I mean this with from the bottom of my heart. I would love to meet all of you. I would love to have all of you over for lunch or dinner or something and just get to know each of you. And believe me, if you ever flow through Washington, D.C. and you text me or let me know if if we can, I would love to have you. We could, you know, have a little tea with George and, and Jefferson right there. But we will have an opportunity, if you want to think about it and plan now, to meet at the Mom Rise in Orlando, um, Florida, October 1 through the 3rd. Now, I went back. Our new website has been launched. It's awesome. It's so easy to navigate now. And um, I really studied out, you know, what the agenda is. We come in on Friday night. We have a reception. There's a, a patriotic movie that we can see. And then all day speakers and breakout groups and lunch and uh, dinners and uh, Saturday and then half a day Sunday. And then we uh, leave. So the price is actually $325 for all of the sessions and for a dinner and a lunch and the evening reception on Friday. So I, I was thinking it would, it, uh, uh, the price would raise a little bit if we didn't buy it purchase before a certain time, but we just captured it. it's at 325. The hotel rooms are in its gorgeous, the Hyatt Hotel. It's, it's a magnificent property that we were able to secure is uh, we've got the rooms for 139 a night. And then your airfare, which might be anywhere from 250 to 500, depending on where you live. So, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking maybe a investment of a thousand dollars for the weekend might be fun to bring your husband. My husband's coming. I know several husbands, many husbands that are coming and just tack on a day before or a day after and, and have some fun there in the Orlando area. So I really want you to rethink this Momorize. There'll be fantastic speakers. You're going to meet mamas from all over the country that are, you know, we'll be talking a lot about cottage meetings and the various initiatives and what moms are doing around the country. You'll get ideas, you'll make connections and friendships with these like-minded mothers. We also have a mom summit coming up in um, Charlotte, North Carolina, September 18th. And that's from one to four, anyone that lives in that region. And we're still working on, we talked about that um, Virginia summit. We're gonna give about two to three weeks 
advance notice before we have these summits. We're just having a hard time finding a venue. Tyler, maybe you can help us with that. Okay, so girls, here we go. We're on a lesson 11 of 16. Do you have your work workbook? These workbooks, I want you to take notes in these workbooks. You will go back to these workbooks. If you ever have to speak at a rally or in your community or before the school board, you will go to these workbooks and you'll pull out sections of it to speak from because now we're learning principles and you know principles always trump are universal uh, because they appeal they're rooted in truth and and so you'll speak with greater authority if you can you know become familiar and know this material so many people just speak from emotion and anger and fear but you will speak from a greater position of strength and authority and these workbooks will help you speak that way. So remember, always review what we have learned. There's 18 pages this week. That's a lot of material. I'm not gonna be able to go through everything that I would like to, but if you will review these 18 pages over the next 48 hours, it will help lock in some of the things that we're gonna to review today in our class. I'm telling you, my workbooks are my treasures. And um, I hope that you'll begin to mark them up and really use them and, and really begin to understand how valuable they will be in helping you remember and stay informed and be able to speak how our founders would have spoken or what they might have intended. So, you know, our Healing of America seminar is so good right now because it, it's just so needed. It's helpful. It's enlightening because so many of us, this is why we're here. We're worried about the future of our children and our grandchildren, about our communities, about this country. Seminar one, which uh, takes four weeks to get through each seminar. And remember, uh, mamas, if you've missed any classes, they're all recorded online. Just go to the cottage meeting and view presentations and they're all there. Seminar one reminds us that God is a God of miracles back then in the early formation of our country. And hopefully it, it you know, settles on your heart, but wait a minute. He's still a God of miracles. He still very much has a vested interest in this, you know, land of free. And so um, seminar two, we learned the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers. We learned their wisdom and their understanding. They wanted this constitution to be our greatest export to the world. They wanted it to be a model document and it has become. And we've seen as we study the constitution and the principles they gave us in these free market prosperity economics that under them, uh, within the first hundred years of living uh, under these principles, we became you know, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth, even though we had only 6% of the world's population, that, you know, this idea of limited government and checks and balances and separation of power and free markets, they work, they work. And we have that first century of living under, uh, you know, those principles to prove that. And then seminar three, we've been studying the attacks on the constitution, the attacks on our school systems, the attacks on the moral fiber. We're not looking so strong and robust like we did our first hundred years because we veered away from these principles. And we've been talking about, you know, these uh, godless educators and these uh, next week, particularly, we'll talk about self-serving master planners. Uh, and what they did uh, to kind of uh, to redirect this nation. 
and um, and these you know communistic revolutionaries that were so influential uh, on Horace Mann and John Dewey. So moms, whew, let's not lose hope. You know we have to understand how something got broke in order to know how to fix it. And seminar four is going to teach us what we can do to begin to heal our home or the school systems or our communities, the state and even the nation and, and even the world. So God is going to distill upon each of us different ideas. And that's the beautiful thing as you come together and you learn and you share, then the spirit pricks your heart what you might need to do in your little sphere of influence. So seminar three really is not meant to drive us to the closet with a tub of ice cream. I always say that seminar three can be a little heavy, although I feel like I've been eating a lot of ice cream the last few weeks with uh, summer and the beach. And, and maybe I've been in seminar three thinking about it a little too much, but we really are in a war for the hearts of our children and our grandchildren. So let's not take counsel from our fears. I love that scripture in 1 Timothy where God tells Timothy, look, I haven't given you the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. That's why we got to keep dialed in and rooted with God. So fresh courage take, mamas. God is a mighty God and we know he will prevail. And as long as we stay on his side, we're going to prevail as well. So let's stay anchored in hope. And, uh, and mostly mamas, I think you know this already, but we need you to be a light and a beacon to those around you. I mean, one of the greatest jobs we do as mothers and grandmothers are we're cheerleaders and we keep everyone kind of stabilized within our home. And we, and we stabilize ourselves and we stabilize that family by looking to God, faith, family, keeping our family close by learning. And this is why you show up each week in our cottage meetings. So you can learn those things and get them locked in your heart and your mind. So you can be more effective in your home and community. And um, I really commend, there was about, gosh, 25 mamas that came to the online cottage meeting training last week. Thank you so much. We're going to continue to have these cottage meeting training sessions once a month and we will, me and Viv will stay on as long as um, we need to. And we'll answer any questions, concerns that you may have, even if you don't feel like you're there yet, like, wait a minute, I don't know enough to teach, to lead a, a class. I, I just need to come to the online classes. That's so fine. But I'd really encourage you to begin to come to these training sessions. It's kind of like the equivalent of just, you know, saying, okay, Lord, here am I, I'll, I'm willing to get on this wall. I don't know what I'm doing. But inevitably, as you are in that position, as you are standing, I call it standing in holy places where he needs you. When the arrows start to hit, you will pick up a club or you will do something just because you're in a position for God to use you. So I really recommend just coming to these uh, cottage meeting uh, uh, training sessions. And we're also going to start in, in about a month or two, some training sessions to run for school board or run for office. And once a month, we'll have these training sessions and all the moms can get on. And even if you're not there, even if you're like, Oh, no, that's not my cup of tea. I promise you, if you just come on to some of these training sessions we're going to start uh, to, to do, maybe God will whisper to you, well, what can be your part, you know, in some of these things that we'll present to you. So, um, I, and you're already doing your part, girls, because you're here. 
you are doing something, you're showing up, you're learning, you're gathering together. Uh, you know, I, I, every single week, so many of you moms will stay on or will share with us throughout the week that what you are learning is changing the way that you, you're teaching your children or your grandchildren. I had a mom come up to me two weeks ago and say, I've been watching you online and I'm starting a family devotional with my family. You know, I didn't, I didn't know her at all, but that's what God spoke to her as she's been, you know, attending our online classes. Some of you are starting to go to school board meetings, even testify before school board meetings. Some of you are starting cottage meetings. So you can, I, I know if I were to ask each of you, you're doing things a little bit different as you're coming together and, and learning uh, and learning and growing and sharing together. Okay, so here we go. Seminar three, section three, the assault on the charter of freedom. Now, the last two weeks, we've talked about how Horace Mann and John Dewey, these godless educational reformers that are really revered in American history and in those educational circles, knew that if they could diminish the influence of mother and God in a child's life, they would have a greater chance of being able to control that child. And so that is what they set out to do. They made the, the school days longer. They took the little one room school house that all the kids used to be educated in, brothers, sisters, and they separated middle school, high school, elementary, and they made peer pressure more influential in the student's life than the family. And they even convinced the kids that there's this generational gap. Your parents are old fashioned. They don't really understand. They're not learning the new stuff like you are. And so, you know, and, and, and we gave power to the government to expand their control over the school systems around that, you know, Russian satellite launch, the Sputnik in, in 1957. We thought we were falling behind during the Cold War. And so we allowed them to teach more maths and sciences and advanced curriculum and less constitution in the founding fathers. And what happened is kids began people began to behave according to how they believe and how they've been taught. And this is why our founders knew that if we didn't continue to teach religion and morality along with knowledge to our children, they wouldn't be able to the next generations to maintain this Republic that is based on God's law, people's law, and people needed to be morally virtuous and strong in order to maintain a Republic based on God's law. And so, you know, we see this anti-God, anti-American sentiment creeping in in the 1900s, the, the 18, late 1800s and the 1900s. And the Supreme Court helped out, uh, you know, these people by removing God from school. We can no longer uh, pray. We can no longer read Bible verses. In some of the school systems my kids went to, we couldn't even pledge because one nation under God was offensive to some people. And so, you know, we can see, I mean, imagine if you told this history to the school board, we can see that when we begin to take God out of school, have our score, have we gone up? Is our kids more emotionally stable and strong? No, the scores have gone down and our children are, you would almost think in crisis. And so who has been tampering with the soul of America is the question. Why is there sense uh, this kind of general sense of, crisis hanging over America? Who is tampering with our souls? Who is to blame? Some people are often offended when they are, are identified as those who are guilty of propelling us along to our present disaster. If you want to find the devil, 
who is responsible, if you want to find the devil, who is responsible for our becoming more socialist, just go home and look in the mirror. We are, we all are responsible. If Washington has been making us more socialist, it is because we as citizens have been asking Washington DC to do so. Do you believe that? I have a sister who told me two months ago, she said, Jolene, you're never gonna believe it, but I'm gonna start getting $550 checks starting in July until December. It's part of the COVID relief plan. And if you make $150,000 or less as a couple, you're gonna get five, you're gonna get $250 per child and you get 300 per child if you have a child six and under. And so, you know, I just, and as I think, you know, about in the Washington Post today. So here's my little post. Senate approves that spending bill, $1.2 trillion spending bill. The Senate passed it. Now it'll go on to the House, which will probably pass it. 2,700 pages worth of spending, you know, and our representatives are voting for this. Nearly everyone is responsible including multinational corporations, big banks, the Federal Reserve System, all the lobbies, lobbies, big labor, National Education Association, big cities, little cities, special interest groups. We're all trying to get something which the constitution and the free market system strictly forbids. So we're gradually replacing people's law. It says here at the bottom of the page where all power is in the people with the principle of ruler's law. I mean, that's what we had under monarchies where whoever controls the money rules. And we've been heading in that direction for the last hundred years. So there's about five or six things that we've allowed to happen over the last century to get us in this position where we think the government should, should give us money, that we are entitled for them to do all these vast 2,700 pages worth of spending that our founders never intended. Remember, remember what our founders said? Limited and carefully defined powers to the federal government. All other things should be determined at the state level by the governor, the state legislature, by the people in that state. So we, we had in 1913, and we've talked about this over the course of the last 11 weeks, the 16th Amendment that came out around in 1913. And it was, it was really, it went against this idea of having uniform and fair taxation, that now the government was going to be able to uh, reach in and tax you directly. And if you made more money, it, you were going to be taxed at a graduated scale. So, you know, the wealth of uh, you know, people making more money isn't as sacred because they're gonna be taxed more. That, that is not a fair and uniform tax that is mentioned uh, in our constitution. And then uh, number two, we saw the 17th amendment. So the 16th and 17th amendment were just passed within months of each other. But that 17th amendment, and we talked about this, so I'm just gonna give you a little review, is what disrupted the separation of powers because senators were supposed to be elected by the state legislature because senators were to be the watchdog for the states. And so they would come home every week and give an accounting to the states about certain bills that were going on. And, you know, is this something you want me to advocate for, for our state, you know, cause we're going to have to come up with some of the money, you know, to pay for this program. So with the 17th amendment, we, we removed that, that position of the Senator 
you know, being beholden to the state. And now he is um, elected by the people, just like the House of Representatives are. We will talk a lot about this um, next week. Uh, in 1913, we also saw the Federal Reserve come into formation, and that was private bankers and institutions began to get control of our monetary system and um, issue the people's money and fix the value. And um, it, girls, there's the most interesting book that tells in 1910 how these very wealthy um, men uh, you know, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the Carnegies, the, the, um, those types met on an island, Misha, off of Georgia called Jekyll Island. And they had like the secret and they knew they needed to keep this a secret meeting because the public would think that they were plotting something nefarious. And yes, they were plotting something nefarious. They all agreed that they needed to uh, kind of come together and have this agreement, this cartel agreement with five objectives. To, they wanted to stop their competition uh, from nation's newer banks and they wanted to uh, obtain a franchise, a way to create money out of nothing for the purpose of lending and getting control of the reserves of all the banks so that the more reckless banks wouldn't be exposed to the currency drains. Now you're probably saying, well, Jolene, what, what in the world are you talking about? What you need to know is private bankers took control of our monetary system and they called it the Federal Reserve. There is nothing federal about the Federal Reserve. It is private bankers and there is nothing reserve about it because it's not based on the gold and the silver standard, which they took us off when the Federal Reserve was formed. So, you know, the Tuttle Twin books that I love, you can buy at Moms for America store. They have a Tuttle Twin book called The Creature of Jekyll Island, and it breaks down the formation of the Federal Reserve. I'm, I'm telling you, I think I might have to recommend the Tuttle version of the actual original book that talks about it. But it's a, it's a great, they have great pictures. And um and it's a way that you can understand what happened to our money system there. Okay. And then we began to set up over the last hundred years, a welfare state starting really with social security as the heart of the program. Remember in the preamble, it, it talks about, we shall provide for the general welfare of, of the country. And they wanted it, didn't want it to be specific welfare. They just wanted, you know, the well-being of the state you know, the well-being of the nation, and it says that in our preamble. Well, you know, in 1936, uh, the, the courts got involved and said, oh, well, that actually means Congress can spend their money wherever they see fit. And so they began to, to specifically prop up uh, uh, welfare events or opportunities. And, and lastly, we saw the United States began in the 1900s to get involved in foreign wars that really was going to expedite the centralization of power in certain um, uh, executive branches of the government. And so what we see here is that, you know, the majority of the problems that we're facing right now have come because we've abandoned what our founders intended and what we were operating uh, under the first hundred years. So let's kind of take a peek into what has happened. What are some of these attacks on the Charter of Freedom on the Constitution? How did it start in this last hundred years? So there was attack just on the notion of the Constitution in general. 
oh, it's outdated. It was written for a different time. Our founders expected that, and when they wrote it, that this constitution would endure forever. And they, they felt that they had discovered and really uh, restored uh, the eternal natural law, natural law meaning God's law, and they embedded it in this unique form of government. They, they called it a revolution which had no parallels in the annals of human history, that there was no model on the face of the globe for what they gave us. Now, yes, republics had existed. They'd have, have existed. Plato, you know, had a republic or spoke about it public. We've got the People's Republic of China. We've got the Leninist Marxist Socialist Republic. But the kind of republic our founders gave us knew was different based on three branches of government with a separation of power and checks and balances and free markets to determine, you, you know, the economics and limited government and the voice of the people was to be preeminent. Nothing like this had ever existed before. And this is why they knew <laughs> in order to be able to keep this republic as Benjamin Franklin said to that woman, uh, that it was incumbent upon us to know it, to improve upon it, to teach it, to be able to perpetuate it, to be able to defend it and to explain it. And they knew that it would depend on two things, American citizens doing two things in order to keep and perpetuate this constitution. Number one, we needed to insist that we follow it the way it was intended. We needed to interpret the constitution the way that it was written, okay? So this is why when we say we're gonna study the constitution, we're gonna study it from the viewpoint of those that gave it to us, okay? When it was most successful, when we lived under it for the first hundred years. And second, they wanted to make it hard to change the constitution, you know, because they knew that every time we change the constitution, we have the chance of weakening or destroying uh, um, it. So remember, every amendment that we've had since our founders, it has superseded an existing amendment or existing lines from what they gave us. And so they didn't want it to be easy to change. In the fifth, remember the fifth article, it talks about how we amend the Constitution. Two thirds of Congress has to pass it. And then three fourths of the state legislators, uh, legislatures legislative bodies around the country have to pass it. George Washington talked about, um, look, we need to be careful that we don't make changes to the constitution by usurpation, he says. Because you know, at that instance, it might seem like a good thing to change the constitution, but ultimately that has been the weapon by which free governments have been destroyed when you change their founding documents. And, and every time, uh, you know, what, what would usurpation look like today? What do you think? Do you think George Washington would think all these executive orders are usurping the legislative branch, making laws by the president? So executive orders, of course, is a usurpation of the Constitution. Look at all these mandates that are coming out from the federal government, vaccine mandates, mass mandates. Think of all the regulatory agencies under the president and all those regulatory laws that he's making that was supposed to just be pertained to his branch that he oversees, but now pertains to the entire country uh, from those regulatory agencies. And then of course, look at the courts and how they're starting to pass judicial legislation, making laws from the bench. 
So by the closing of the 19th century, okay, this is the end of the 1899, so to speak, there began to be a, a massive attack on the relevance of the constitution. So it'd been about 125 years since, um, no, about 100 and something like that, 15 years, 1787. And now the, the separation of powers doctrine is starting to become attacked. And what we're seeing is scholars in the 19, early 1900s and political philosophers are, yeah, they're starting to find fault with the constitution. And, and who was one of those? The president of Princeton University at this time was Woodrow Wilson. Hmm. And wouldn't you know that it, he would go on to become our 28th president and it was under him that we got the 16th amendment and the 17th amendment and, and the federal reserve was formed and we began to see the separation of powers began to break down when those events began to happen. And then we get senators and congressmen that aren't steeped in the wisdom of the founders we have this senator from Pennsylvania here saying that I have no hesitation in stating my deep conviction that the legislatures of America, local, state, and national are presently the greatest menace to a successful operation of our democratic process. Can you imagine <laughs> the congressman saying that? The executive branch, he said, should be strengthened at the expense of the legislature. Surely we have reached the point where we can say that Jefferson was wrong and that the government is not best when governed by the least. And then we've got a uh, Senator Fulbright. All the Fulbright scholars come from Senator Fulbright from Arkansas. He served for 25 years from the forties to the seventies. And he was a big admirer of Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was, you know, 30, 40 years before uh, Fulbright. But Fulbright here says, the president is hobbled in his task of leading the American people by a constitutional system designed for an 18th century agrarian society so far removed from the center of world powers. We need to break out of the intellectual confines, this is Senator Fulbright, of the cherished and traditional beliefs and open our minds to the possibility that basic changes to our systems must be essential to meet the requirement of the 20th century. Okay, so now we're heading into the 1900s. And we also saw in the 1900s, um, Theodore Roosevelt would go on, even though he came in initially as a Republican, would uh, identify himself as a progressive. And he didn't like that doctrine of limited government. In fact, Theodore uh, Roosevelt, he served from 1901 to 1909. He would say, uh, I can do anything except that which the Constitution specifically says I can't do. So that's what he thought the Constitution meant, that if it specifically said he couldn't do something, then that was his green light to do it. And we know that is the complete opposite of the, what the founders wanted. They intended that if the Constitution was silent on something, the Federal Reserve then was supposed to uh, send that back to the states and the states were to determine that. The founders wanted limited and carefully defined powers for the federal government. So you can see our presidents and our uh, Congress are, are starting to push back and say, oh yeah, this, is, this, this document has, is 
no longer for our time. And, and so under Roosevelt, we see this period of big expansionism. He started, he's the one who started building the Panama Canal, which would take decades. And he started to obtain, you know, presence in Cuba and Philippines and Guam and Hawaii. And we started to obtain, you know, uh, these territories. And this idea of a powerful president began to become very popular. And we even see it in the Supreme Court around the 1900s, early 1900s. The Chief Justice Hughes in 1907 said, yes, we are under a constitution, but the constitution is what we judges actually say it is. So instead of being a guardian of what the founders gave us, they now are, you know, going to start to make the document based off of their opinions instead of the rule of law. And Justice Thurgood Marshall attempted to justify rewriting the Constitution uh, um, by Congress and the courts. This is what he said. Anyone who is critical of this flexible interpretation of the Constitution reflects a refusal to accept a new concept of law, to shake free of the 19th century moorings. And so what began to happen is exactly what our founders didn't want to happen in our 5,000 year leap, principle 22, where is my 5,000 year leap? It talks about that in order to maintain this government of free people, we needed to be based on the rule of law. This is principle number 22, not the whims of men. And you can see that the rule of law is being pushed aside for you know, more popular trends and feelings and the consensus of you know, this modern times that they were moving into. And so they're basing their laws on, on the whims of the leaders you know, versus the rule of law that was established very clearly in the constitution. And we even have President Kennedy jumping on board in 1962 in a major address. He had his main theme. He said, there is some feeling uh, by many good Americans that the American constitution, which Gladstone and Gladstone was a great British statesman in the 1800s who recognized the magnificence of the constitution, who Gladstone called the most notable work ever struck off by the mind of men, gives us an automatic light to the future. Uh, that it, our, the constitution guides and clears our way that all of us who follow its very clear precepts, it lays down, everything will be fine. But he said, look, the constitution was written for an entirely different period in our nation's history. It was written under different conditions than what we're facing today. Can you imagine a president saying that about our constitution nowadays? Well, they were saying it back at, at, at this time. And so basically what Kennedy was saying is it just, the constitution just doesn't fit the conditions of our day, even though our founding fathers knew that the constitution was to be eternal is what Jefferson said. These principles would be eternal and that they felt they would apply through the ages because they're written for human nature and to kind of, kind of keep human nature checked and balanced. And human nature never changes. John Adams said that the constitution was written for a population of 3 million, but it would govern over 300 million. That's a quote from Adams in um, our first seminar. We have 320 million uh, today. And so that should be adequate still for us today, but we haven't been following it. 
the last hundred years. And so it, it doesn't seem adequate, does it? Or it's been changed or it's been amended. What we also have seen is an attack on the founding fathers began to be launched in, you know, the late 1800s into the 1900s. And, you know, we know that our little founding fathers pledged their, their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honors when they signed that Declaration of Independence. And many of them did lose their lives and did lose their fortunes. And it would seem, you know, moving into this 1900s, all of their honors were definitely being attacked. Now, I'm a product of graduating from high school in the late 80s, 87, and college in 92. And that was a time, you know, where God was taken out of the schools. And I'm not going to lie to you. Even though I didn't completely believe it, when I graduated from high school, what I kind of knew about Benjamin Franklin, oh yeah, he's a well, he's a womanizer. George Washington, oh yeah, he's a racist. He had a lot of slaves. Thomas Jefferson, oh yeah, he had a lot of Ill illegitimate children with his slaves. I mean, that is what I knew, you know? And I think because I had a mother that loved America and loved our founding fathers, I knew that that probably wasn't quite right, but that was kind of preeminent on my brain. And so we were going to begin to see this campaign to attack our founders in the 1900s. And a lot of it was done by these tax exempt foundations. And we're gonna talk about this next week, these master planners. And they used a lot of their money to, you know, to publish textbooks and to determine curriculum and to, you know, to remake and redo Williamsburg or Mount Vernon or Monticello. And, uh, and they would very, coyly um, weave in as you go visit those places. And if anyone's gone to those places, you can see the scripts that, you know, the guides use, uh, there are attacks on our founders and it, it attacks their personality is what it does. So if you could begin to feel like they're cor corrupted, you know, um, immoral, uh, not integritous men, you're less inclined to actually study what they gave us to study and revere the writings that they gave us. So if you can, if they can get you to believe that our founders are racist or uh, perverts or hypocrites, you're more likely to buy into that notion of the 1619 project that our country was based on, founded on racism or the critical race theories that, you know, so all the schools are accepting now that, you know, this country, because of our history, you're either uh, an oppressor or you're oppressed. And I'm telling you, school boards are falling for this because they never, you know, in the last hundred years, there's been this campaign to really attack our founding fathers. So who was responsible for all of this? It is these tax exempt foundations. So. Congress began to get very leery about how these foundations were influencing uh, uh, with their money uh, Americans. And so um, in 1952, there was actually a special select committee in Congress to investigate these foundations and other organizations like that. And that um, investigation was really squashed. And so uh, Congressman Reese got a second committee to further study these problems and his findings were, were put together in the Reese report. And it's very hard to find that Reese report. If you get the tax exempt foundation book from um, the Thomas Jefferson Center, you can go to KimberCurriculum.com and I think it's like $10, $12. That Reese report is in here and it's fascinating. It is hard to find online. I'm not going to lie to you, but in it, 
in, in, in these committees, they discovered that these tax exempt, exempt foundations uh, from Rockefeller and Carnegie and Ford and JP Morgan and Vanderbilt's, that they were using some of the resources um, for un-American and subversive activities. And so that's an interesting read. You might want to just put get that and put that uh, in your library as a resource. There also was an attack on the balance of power, and that is the 17th Amendment again that we've already talked about. So instead of you know uh, the Senate senators being chosen by the state legislature, the people now are going to um, elect the Senate. So remember, our founders wanted the House the House members to be elected by the people and they were only gonna be in for two years. And they were kind of like that three-headed eagle in the wings. They were the wing of compassion. What are the problems? Let's solve your problems. I'm only gonna serve for two years. So we gotta solve your problem as fast as we can so I can get reelected. But remember the senators aren't elected, but every six years, they're kind of like, let the cooler heads prevail. They're the ones that are supposed to go back to the state and say, look, this is the programs that the house wants to pass. It's gonna cost a lot of money. Do we wanna do this? Can we afford this? Is this gonna infringe upon the rights of our state? And so when we, when the 17th amendment was passed, the Senator started acting like the house members and our wing of compassion versus the wing of resource, we began to get off kilter and we started flying closer towards more of a tyrannical rule, power, you know, with the executive. And so, um, so instead of, you know, uh, coming home and getting your marching orders from your state legislature, now the senators are, are just as beholden to solve problems fast and to get money and get the goodies from uh, Washington, D.C. so they can show their constituents back home. Oh, look what I'm doing. I've got more money to solve more of our problems uh, in our state. And, and because it takes about $16 million on average to run for uh, uh, the Senate. And so where a lot of these senators don't have that kind of money. So they now have to become beholden to people, to special interest groups, to unions. Those people get them elected the second and third time because that's where they're getting their money from to run for re-election. So you can see this disruption of power. No one is looking out for the states anymore. And um, as the Senate now are more beholden uh, to uh, people and to special interests and those, those kind of things. All right, so that was the attack on the balance of power. And then there was also an assault on the concept of the executive branch. Now our founding fathers will just turn over in their grave to see how powerful the executive branch over the last 200 years has become. Have you watched that 13 minute video uh, YouTube from the TJC entitled the most powerful political office in the world. I would really recommend it helps the lights to go on how much more the that branch is doing than they were expected to do. Remember our founders just wanted them to do six things and we've gone over those six responsibilities. They're right there in our workbook, but, um, but the presidential powers have been expanded by outright usurpation. All right. When the president started, you know, developing all these 500 different programs and branches uh, of uh, administrative agencies and making laws, and then those laws, you know, he began to, um, you know, apply to all the citizens in the country, and then all the monies that Washington D.C. was going to start taking in because of the 16th Amendment 
the federal government can directly go in and tax individuals specifically. So, so you could see how the government was growing. We were getting all this money and the president was, you know, getting involved in things he was not supposed to get involved with, with these agencies. And then we have the courts weighing in saying, oh yeah, the government can, can spend money on anything they deem necessary to maintain the general welfare of the country completely against the intentions of our founders. And then we get the president now starting to make law on his own through executive orders. I mean, uh, President Biden made 50 executive orders within the first 10 weeks he was in office. And, and so, uh, and then we have the Supreme Court, you know, seeing, well, hey, if the executive branch seems to be expanding into lawmaking, maybe we should. And, and so we saw, you know, uh, in the 1900s, the courts uh, getting in on this judicial lawmaking as well, citing if it's in the best interest of, you know, the citizens, we have a right to say something out of just public necessity. And, uh, and so we'll talk about that in a moment, the attacks on the, uh, the Supreme Court. But we're seeing, so we're seeing the executive branch expand and we're seeing in the executive branch, he was, our president was just supposed to enforce laws and the Supreme Court was just supposed to guard the laws, but now they're both making laws. And guess what? Congress is giving them the power to do some of these things because our senators don't want to ask the hard questions anymore. They just want to get reelected. And so, you know, they, they want some of that money that we're amassing. So, the, you know, they're okay with taxing and taxing and spending and spending because that will ensure they get reelected and, and because they're not beholden to the state legislature anymore. So are you starting to see, girls, how we're starting to veer away from what made us great the first hundred years. So we've, we've talked about this a little bit in the second, not in a little bit, a lot in the second seminar, but you just kind of have to keep hearing these things. And I've told you this before, it didn't really click how damaging the 16th and the 17th amendment was initially as I learned this from the first little while. So just keep having it lapse over you as we talk about it and go back and read it and study it. So these are, you know, when you're talking to your elected officials, these are things that you could talk about, you know, you could kind of vet them. Well, what do you think? Do you think some of our problem is because of the 16th and 17th amendment? What, what can we do to limit the power that the federal government has? What can we do to, you know, to cut off the, you know, this money source that the federal government is using now that we're starting to look more like a socialist country, that all roads and solutions are to be had in Washington, D.C. That, that's not what our founders intended. Why aren't, why aren't you as a state legislator or governor, why aren't you have more of a spine? Just push back and say no, <laughs> you know? So when you, when you bring a little bit of this kind of understanding and history to your conversations, it changes the conversation. Okay, so our president now, instead of just being in charge of six things that it states in the Constitution, Article 2, we've now given him responsibility over the workforce, over the Department of Agriculture, housing, energy, labor, uh, federal relief, 
administering the welfare, national welfare program, Medicare, under administering the national social security program, the Department of Education, law enforcement, the health department, environmental EPA. He oversees 40% of the nation's lands and resources that the federal government has control over. Uh, he regulates um, large industries, still automobile, coal, mining. He monitors all the radio, TV, internet, uh, watches over the distribution of foods and drugs. Can you see how it's literally impossible for one man to oversee uh, uh, this? So we're having this kind of runaway executive branch that has been created really by our legislative branch advocating, abdicating, I have problems with that word. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it, but it's a good word. Abdicating their responsibility to the executive branch. And then we also have our presidents, you know, look, we know any kind of agreement that a president makes with a foreign country has to be ratified and formalized by the Senate. Two thirds of the Senate have to ratify that foreign uh, treaty. But what we have presidents, what we're starting to see them do in the last few decades is make these international trade agreements that don't have to be approved by our Senate. And we saw that, remember in 2012, when there was a hot mic and President Obama didn't know the mic was on and he was talking to the president of Russia. And he said, look, after the elections, I'm gonna have more flexibility to do some deals kind of thing. And so this is what presidents are doing to sidestep that check and balance of the Senate that would, was supposed to be needed to approve some of these treaties or agreements with foreign countries that our president made. So, you know, Lord Acton, that English historian in the 19th century, he said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's what we're seeing with this ginormous, huge, powerful uh, executive branch that holds billions and billions of dollars, you know, at, at his will. And he can call those senators or congressmen into the Oval Office and say, I will give you this money if you will advocate for this program in your state. And, and that's what happens when that branch has, has gotten too powerful. And we also uh, have seen an assault on the founders' intent for the Supreme Court. Really, uh, you know, for, for many years, the Supreme Court restrained themselves for many generations, but they were eventually too tempted to begin to substitute their own wisdom for that of what the founders gave us, as they saw, you know, the other branches of government doing misdeeds. And, uh, and so... We see this with the, the 14th Amendment. Remember, it was supposed to be an amendment to protect slaves, former slaves, to give them you know, fair citizen rights and equal protection of the laws. And the Supreme Court uh, in, in the last few decades have used that 14th Amendment to really dis diminish and hear you know, cases that the states should have heard and diminished the state's rights. And that was the grounds of passing in 2013, um, same-sex marriage based on that equal protection because other states weren't recognizing. And so the federal government came in and punished those states and said, we're just gonna make it a law because everyone should have equal protection. And so it was a misalignment, a mis 
interpretation of what the founders intended. And, and now we're seeing the courts get involved with high schools, coaches that want, are wanting to pray, you know, after games and the courts are saying, oh no, that's an establishment of religion. And so they're just getting involved in areas that uh, they shouldn't be. And, and with social legislation, abortion, believe me, we're going to start to see cases dealing with transgenderism, Miss America and so forth. And they're, they're going to take these things up, which, which they shouldn't, it, be, it should be handled at a local level. So there are really four steps, uh, uh, four time periods of our courts that have, you know, we have digressed the first, first period right after the constitution when John Marshall was the chief justice during the 1800s for 34 years, he was the longest serving chief justice and they held to what the constitution said that it was the supreme law of the land and the federalist papers and the words of uh, the founders were like the exclusive guide to interpreting the constitution. And then the second period from about 1830s to 1890s, uh, you know, they, they didn't quote the founders or the constitution as much, but they had still adhered to the philosophy of the founders. And then from about 1895 uh, uh, until about the 1900s, they, we began to see a shift in judges. Oh, the constitution is what we say it is because we're the judges. Uh, and we've got, you know, uh, Charles Evan, who was a justice saying that, there's a quote there. And then this final period, I guess we'll say starting the two, 2000s, it's continuing today. That some might say our judiciary, our Supreme Court, the courts are just virtually out of control and <laughs> they're in need of some checks and balances. So, you know, remember Thomas Jefferson said, and our founders actually said they were worried about the courts because of all the three branches, they didn't really put some checks on the courts. Whereas, you know, a president can veto legislation from Congress or Congress can override the veto by two thirds, but there's no way to check a bad court decision. And so we will talk about in, that in the fourth seminar, possibly what a judicial restraint amendment would look like. Imagine if we had two thirds of Congress that could overrule a, a bad court decision that they don't agree with. You know, it would just kind of put those justices on, um, on notice that they can't just do anything they want without having some sort of check and balance from one of the other branches of government, something to think about. And, uh, and so, um, okay. And I think I'm, I'm cruising through here. Hey, I don't think we're gonna go 25 minutes over today. So, um, and I'm, I'm skipping a little bit girls. So this is why I really want you to go back and, you know, get a, a good, uh, you know, chocolate bar tonight and, and crawl in bed and, uh, you know, go through these 18 pages again and go, oh, Jolene, why didn't she, she give us that quote. That's so good. All right. So I want you to have an experience with these 18 pages uh, tonight. Maybe not a chocolate bar because that's not going to set well with your stomach. Let's get real. Maybe a or something. You know? <laughs> so anyways, we see, you know, attacks on just the relevance of the Constitution, attacks on our founding fathers, attacks on the balance of power by the 17th Amendment, attacks on, um, you know, the way that 
the, the executive got big by the 16th Amendment and all the money they were taking in and all the, the expansion of that money caused the executive branch to become more powerful. There was also an assault on our money system. And I talked about that a little bit uh, about these private bankers getting together and starting this cartel, this consortium uh, of, of what they were gonna call the Federal Reserve because it would convince the people that, oh, the government is behind it. And it's it's backed by it's it's backed by the word reserve that you know that would lead you to believe that there's money in the bank. But really what happened, uh, so in, in the constitution, it says Congress shall have power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. Coining money uh, meant in section 10, if you go on the constitution, that it must be backed by the gold and silver standard, our money. But eventually uh, the courts allowed the government to print money, paper money, currency, which ultimately, you know, could be redeemed by gold and silver, but it got us, um, you know, comfortable with this idea of paper money. And, and then this consortium of private banks established the Federal Reserve in 1913. And this really would have been considered unconstitutional, but the Supreme Court uphold uh, them doing this. And so they took us off the golden, uh, standard gold and silver standard, and they allowed these these national banks to begin to loan out more money than they actually had. Now, what did our founding fathers wanted? Uh, you know, the money systems to be controlled by uh, the supply and demand of the market. Just let the natural program of supply and demand dictate the prices. But by taking us off this this kind of uh, program. Um, and, and putting forth the 16th and the 17th Amendment, these banks now began to loan out money at a greater rate than what they actually had. It was called fiat, phony money. And it didn't have to be backed by anything. And the Federal Reserve can artificially inflate and deflate money in the dollar by controlling interest rates. And so when they lower interest rates, it causes a boom. Everyone wants to buy the interest rates are low. So we spend, spend, spend. And then they can artificially raise those rates, call in those loans and, and causes kind of a boom and bust cycle so they can control the people and the markets. And it's a little more complicated than that, but that's all I think you need to know. <laughs> unless you're really into economics and Wall Street and those kind of things, in order to understand that it, it was a nefarious design, uh, what happened with the federal uh, reserve systems and how, you know, these people are controlling our money systems. And also, as we began to tax more with the 16th uh, Amendment, the value um, of our monies also began to be influenced by this new taxing policy and uh, and so it talks a little bit about that there on the assault of money, the 16th Amendment. Um, you know, it's interesting by spending billions and billions of dollars now, as you know, as we tax and the government has all this money, they're tempted and they are doing it. They're not tempted, they are doing it. They're spending billions on domestic programs and we're seeing a serious breakdown of separation of powers between the federal government and the states. And, you know, just with that uh, spending bill that was passed yesterday in the Senate, 1.2 trillion 
2,700 pages of spending. Look, our founders did not intend for the federal government to have that much control and say they wanted states to determine, you know, how to care for the poor and the needy and, you know, medical and, and that kind of thing. And now, once again, like I've said, instead of looking, you know, locally for solutions, we have a problem. How can we best solve it locally? We all just, our instinct is to turn to Washington, D.C. So with, you know, with the pandemic, it was just such a natural thing that, you know, the government said, oh, we're here to save you and we're going to give you monies to help you. In the olden days, I think neighborhoods would have rallied together and, you know, uh, come together and, and had little neighborhood or local meetings and turned to God and, you know, all showed up to raise the barn kind of thing. But we don't do that so much anymore. We look to Washington, D.C. How are you going to bail us out? And, you know, from some of those stimulus checks that have come out the last year or so, I, I have family members that went on family vacations <laughs> because of the money from those checks. I have a girlfriend that owns a, a really successful a re, a designer resale bag company in California. I mean, like, these are really expensive bags she sells. And she said, Julene, after every stimulus check, my sales went up almost 80 to 90% of what it had been the previous year because the government is funding people buying reused designer bags. And so, you know, what, what has happened is it's created a serious amount of abject dependency on Washington, D.C. for some of the most trivial individual needs of city, states, and even citizens. And, uh, and so this is what has happened as the federal government has gotten involved and taken more of our money and wanted to have more of a say about things that the founders didn't intend for them to have. And, uh, and then there's a page of the assaults on the concept of checks and balances. And we've kind of discussed some of these things uh, in class today. And ultimately, lastly, the attacks against the founders' philosophy on interstate commerce. Remember uh, that commerce clause in Article 1 um, talks about, you know, the South was withholding some of their goods, cotton and so forth from the North. And they, you know, the North didn't, didn't think that was fair. And so that was one of the compromises of the Constitution was this commerce clause that the government would oversee commerce within, with, uh, or amongst the states, not within. But through the years, this commerce clause has become one of the most distorted and abused provisions because the government is getting involved with business inside these states. I mean, look at Obamacare. He mandated everyone, you know, have uh, health insurance businesses. And, and ultimately, this would go to the Supreme Court, and they would declare that and a complete abuse of the Commerce Clause. But just look at, I was saying, Gerald, um, the vaccine passports that are required in order to eat at a restaurant in New York City, they're requiring the federal government is telling businesses that it, you know, or New Yorkers, maybe that's coming from the executive branch of uh, the governor in New York, you know, saying that um, that would be interesting. Is that, is that, Gerald, is that coming from Cuomo who is no longer, <laughs> but you're, but you're seeing the federal government, you know, suggesting that states do these things, that we have mass mandates, that we have mandatory uh, vaccine passports in order for businesses to, to be able to do what they do. And that is definitely an infringement on the commerce clause.
Someone help me out there about New York. Where did that come from? So anyways, because of this like basic knowledge of constitutional principles that had been a part of our educational experience for the first hundred years, but began to be removed in the 1900s, it's really a lot of what is happening now is because of our ignorance that we've abandoned the wisdom of what the founders gave us. And if, you know, there's a detailed study of some of the major problems facing America today, it reveals that they have been caused because we abandoned the basic principles of our founders and our constitution. And so we've got one more week, girls, one more week, hang in there of uh, problems and, and how the role of America, what our founders intended has shifted and how we have developed entangling alliances and done things that they never intended for us to do. They wanted us to be a light on the hill. And so um, I hope you're starting to see now that you know, through the education and, and through some of these shifts constitutionally, why our kids are so sympathetic and lean towards certain forms of government. They've been indoctrinated. Why, you know, 65% of that age block, 18 to 24, voted for President Biden, and they came out 11% more in that age group than any other age group. It's because of some of these ideas that Karl Marx, you know, and Horace Mann and John Dewey were able to infiltrate through the school systems, and they removed, you know, the influence of God and of mama, and, and they began to control these kids. And, you know, we talk about how they attacked the moral fiber, took out prayer, took out Bible instilled the idea that yes, there is a generational gap. Your parents are outdated. And they have these attacks on our constitution have allowed the federal government to grow as we pass the 16th and the 17th amendment with huge disruptions of the checks and balances and separation of power and, and the ability for the federal government now to begin to spend indiscriminately. And everyone is kind of like, yeah, what you, what you got for me today, Uncle Sam kind of thing. And then our Supreme Court, you know, getting involved and starting to legislate. Uh, in areas uh, from the bench that, you know, you should never legislate from the bench, but starting to get involved with social issues that were meant to be determined by the people in the states and in the, in where they live respectively. So look, mamas, let's shore up our shoulders. Let's not lose hope because unless we know how it got broke, we can't appreciate and understand how to heal this land. So please go back and reread these 18 pages today. Lock it in that brain. Remember, we have to keep telling and reminding ourselves, God did not establish this first free society in modern times just to see it utterly collapse into oblivion. We know, we have to remind ourselves, it tells us in the word that he will heal our land if we turn to him and we seek his face and we humble ourselves and we repent of our wicked ways. And it will be beautiful mamas like you that will remind people when they come to you, you know, ranting and raving and all despondent, you will share with them. This is the formula that God has given us. There's great hope. He will heal our land. If we do these things, it will justify the heavens to intervene. So mamas, we got to just keep praying. We got to keep looking to God. We got to keep reminding our kids you know, that when they're up against hard things, get on your knees. We are a praying nation. My cute little boy who's the basketball player yesterday is negotiating 
for his next contract in the NBA. <laughs> and he's 23 years old. He's still kind of a young gun, but he's been in the league now five years. And he just felt like he has an agent, but he needed to go talk to the general manager and advocate for himself and, and this contract that he's desiring. So he called my husband and he said, dad, I just got on my knees. I'm going to go talk to the general manager right now. They're in Vegas for summer league. He's just there supporting the team. And he said, I just, I just prayed that God will be with me to, you know, express myself and things will go the way I want. And, you know, when my husband told me that that's what Frankie said, just as he was going to go in to negotiate his contract, uh, <laughs> I just thought, I don't care what that contract is. The fact that that kid has enough faith in God that if he gets on his knees, God will assist him in, in, a, in a scary, hard, important decision in his life. To him, this is a really big deal. And it is a big deal at 20. It's a big deal. And so afterwards, he said, oh, it went so well. He, you know, this general manager answered all my questions, even almost before I asked. And they agreed you know, on, on a contract that he feels good about. And so mamas, our kids are going to turn to God as they see us turning to God. And when things are bad and things are bad in our country and things are whatever situations we're being challenged with in our home or communities, if they hear us talking about praying and if we, and when they're with us, if before they leave our home, if we gather them together and we pray, it will be a natural thing for them to want to continue to pray. And a praying nation is going to justify the heavens to intervene. God is not going to ignore the prayers of his righteous children. So if you get discouraged and you're not quite sure what to do, just pray. Something as simple as praying is so powerful. And it affects people and it affects generations, your example. Keep that family close. Keep learning. Keep studying each week, coming together and learning these things. And then ask God, okay, God, I'm learning. I'm going to keep learning. Learning principles of liberty is like studying the scriptures. You don't read the Bible one time and say you're good. You read it your whole life. And I hope that you will consider studying in cottage meetings, a part of the rest of your life routine. God gave us this beautiful land and he expects it to uphold it and defend it and perpetuate it. And that's going to require some effort and some study continual. You know, we study the scriptures to stay strong spiritually. We study principles of liberty so we can stay strong in defending this great land of the free that God established at his hand. So girls, that is the end of our class today. Thank you so much for hanging in there with the woes. We are discussing the woes right now, but seminar four is going to be so hopeful and so empowering. And I promise you gentle ideas will come to your mind as we start talking about some of the solutions and you'll be amazed how God will use you. So we will see you next week. Until then, 